Our second reading is um, Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer and his, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and, the, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, will lift up your head from you and hang you on a trees, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was the Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted it to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through this series on the life of Joseph. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God that is with us even and especially in the pit as you are with Joseph. Lord, we, we thank you that you are the God who is with us in all things. And 
I pray, Lord, that you would be with us here this morning as we place ourselves under this text. And Lord, I I do pray that everything that follows, all that we say about it would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, Lord, and that through it we would come to know Christ more fully. It's in his name that we we pray, and also in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So, uh, there's a lot going on in in today's passage, and and I want to look at it under three headings, kind of looking at each of these in turn as we walk through these events of Joseph's life. And I want to use these three headings, the interpretation of life, the interpretation of work, and the interpretation of Christ. And so let's look at each of those in turn as, as we go through this passage, and let's start with the interpretation of life. Because of Joseph's faithful stewardship of his tasks, he is given the special responsibility of attending to the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in prison. We're told that the captain of the guard, and and possibly this, this captain is Pharaoh from the earlier chapter, this captain charges Joseph with this special task. And the cupbearer and the baker, they're put in prison because of some offense that they've committed against Pharaoh. We're not told here exactly what the offense is, but, but, but it should be noted that the word for offense here is the Hebrew word for sin. And in fact, this is the very word used by Joseph in the previous chapter when, when he refuses um, Potiphar's wife, her, her, her adulterous proposition, when Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And what that tells us here, what this wording tells us is this offense against Pharaoh is is probably not some sort of social mistake committed against a very moody Pharaoh. Most likely some real wrong was done and committed here. And this also accords with the wisdom that we'll see in Pharaoh later as he places Joseph in this position of leadership over Egypt. For all that we can tell, this pharaoh seems to be a fairly wise and measured ruler. But one night in prison, both of these prisoners, they dream dreams and and, and they realize that somehow these dreams are important for their situation. Somehow there's a crucial message here that needs to be deciphered. But they themselves, they're, they're not able to interpret these dreams. They're troubled by this, and and Joseph sees their downcast faces. Joseph comes to them, though, and he tells them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell your dreams to me. The chief cupbearer then tells Joseph his dream, and, and Joseph, by the gifting of God, he provides the following interpretation. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. When the baker hears this favorable interpretation, he also comes to Joseph and asks Joseph to interpret his dream. But then, in contrast, the the baker, he receives this harrowing interpretation. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. And hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And just as these interpretations say, both of these things will happen in three days' time. But again, this is not Joseph's special knowledge. This is the Lord's. 
And again, as Joseph tells both of these officials, do not interpretations belong to the Lord. These interpretations do not belong to Joseph, but to God alone. And notice, too, that Joseph does not speak here only of the interpretation of dreams, but of interpretations in general. And in fact, the the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of of the Hebrew Old Testament, in this passage, it uses a word for interpretation that also appears in some important New Testament Greek passages. And one of these passages is 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul says the following. He says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And here's the word, interpreting, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In this passage of Paul, we see just how deep this interpretation of God goes. The Spirit of God, we are told, searches out everything. It searches out all things. Paul tells us that we have been given the Holy Spirit as a gift to understand all of the things that we have been given by God. It is by God that we are able to understand the ways and the works and the messages messages of God. Paul tells us that the Christian has received the Holy Spirit to interpret, to know these spiritual truths. And these are the truths that search all things. And again, this is very much what Joseph tells us. Do not interpretations belong to God. Again, Joseph here seems to be speaking of interpretation in general. He goes on to interpret the dreams. Yes, dreams are one thing that God interprets. But again, the Holy Spirit searches and interprets all things. And so why does Joseph give us this open-ended statement? Do not interpretations belong to the Lord? Well, this is because, if you think about it, there is something much, much more difficult for Joseph to interpret than these dreams, his life. Remember everything that's happened so far. Joseph narrowly escapes murder by his own brothers. He undergoes the cruel experience of being sold into slavery by them. He's treated like a piece of property. He's he's bought by an Egyptian official, Pharaoh. And in Pharaoh's household, he stewards all of his responsibilities well, and he actually refuses to engage in this act of of betrayal, this act of adultery. But all the same, Joseph is falsely accused, and now he finds himself in prison. As he explains his situation to the cupbearer in this passage, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should throw me into the pit. Joseph calls his present circumstances that of being in the pit. Circumstantially speaking, this is the lowest point of the whole Joseph narrative. And so how can Joseph make sense of his life? What else can he say but do not interpretations belong to God? And God does give Joseph the interpretation that he needs, though it's an interpretation that requires deep faith and trust in God's good and gracious purposes. As we've said each week, the key verse for interpreting, for understanding the Joseph narrative is this, Joseph's own hard-earned words words of wisdom that he says to his brothers at the end of his life. 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this too very much echoes another set of words from Paul. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this is an important question because we have to identify what is the good that Paul actually identifies? What is the good that all of these things in our life ultimately work toward? Paul tells us that it is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Absolutely all things that God brings into the life of the Christian are meant to conform us into the blessed image of Christ. Absolutely everything. It doesn't matter what someone else might intend by it. Again, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Again, do not interpretations belong to God? God alone is infinitely wise. God alone is infinitely loving. God alone is infinitely powerful. God alone is infinitely glorious. And God will work this good in your life, this greatest good of being conformed to the image of Christ, But, and here's the thing, he will likely do it in ways that you do not expect, in ways that you yourself probably would not have chosen. I say this with trepidation, but we are not promised the life that we think that we want. We are promised the life that God knows we need. This is the life that will conform us into what God intends us to be, As difficult as it can be to say sometimes the life that is good for us. In fact, as as Tim Keller tells us, and, and what else can he say given the truths of Scripture? He says this, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That's a strong statement. And this is a truth that we can cling to now only by faith. But we have good reasons for doing so because we can rest fully in God's orchestration of absolutely everything in our lives according to his good and his gracious purposes. Because eventually all of us will face very, very difficult things. Things like sickness, things like illness, loss, death. For all of us, what are the hard things that we are facing now? Illness, unemployment, rejection, professional failures, unfulfilled hopes and longings, parental struggles with our children. I say this with trepidation, but in what ways do these hardships have the potential to form you in ways that nothing else can? How can these situations cause you to know and trust God in a way that no other circumstance would offer How is God forming you through these very hard things? This is not an easy question, friends, and it offers no simple, easy answers. But if our God is really good and really sovereign and he truly seeks our good, then this is the question we have to keep asking and asking and asking. Again, even in the pit with Joseph, we must say, do not interpretations belong to God? And while in this life we will never fully understand why this or that happened, why things turned out this way and not that way, the one overarching promise we have, the one overarching interpretation we have is this. 
God meant it for good. And that good is our conforming, our growing, our maturing into the image of Christ, into what God intends us to be. The Holy Spirit, he searches out all things. And this is the interpretation that he has given to Joseph and to all of us. God meant it for good. And this brings us to our second point, the interpretation of work. In today's passage, it it not only provides us a general interpretation of all the things in our life, it also allows us to see how this truth plays out in a very important aspect of our life, our work. And when I say work, I mean all of the tasks and the charges and the responsibilities that God has laid before us. Those are many, and those affect and, and play into all of the areas of our life. And if you look, today's passage begins with the phrase, sometime after this, sometime after this. And this likely communicates that quite a bit of time has passed. Joseph has been in jail for quite a while. And Joseph's total time in Egyptian bondage, his time as both a a slave and a a prisoner, his his full time there before he comes to Pharaoh, is going to be about 13 years. And here... At this point, enough time has passed for Joseph to display his skill, his competency, his commitment to doing well the work he has been given. We read this in the previous chapter, chapter 39. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Again, as we talked about last week, the the previous chapter, chapter 39, is beating us over the head with the reality that the Lord is with Joseph. He's with him even here in Egypt. It's stressing that he's with him at the very beginning of his Egyptian exile. Again, the word Lord here is the English translation of, of Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord. God is in covenant with Joseph even in this pit, even in Egyptian exile. As we noted last week, the name the Lord only appears nine times throughout the whole of Genesis 39 through 50. But in Genesis 39, that's where it appears eight of those nine times. Before we understand anything else about Joseph's time in Egyptian exile, we have to understand this. The Lord is with him. And one of the ways that we see that the Lord is with him is because Joseph succeeds in his efforts. But what exactly does this mean? Does this mean that if we have faith, then everything we put our hands to will succeed? God will just make it work out exactly like we expect? Does this mean that if we simply name and claim the blessing of the Lord over any financial or vocational or personal endeavor, then God will make it succeed even beyond our expectations? Does this point to a kind of prosperity gospel? Absolutely not. Again, God may exceed our expectation, but that's not what we're seeing here. To read Joseph's succeeding like this as a kind of prosperity gospel is to forget everything that has happened to Joseph and where he is right now. Again, he is in the pit of prison. Circumstantially speaking, this is the very lowest point of his life. Yes, Joseph is succeeding, 
but he's succeeding in the pit of prison. Yes, God has given Joseph special skills for leadership and governing, and as we will see, God uses this in special ways as Joseph rises to lordship over Egypt. But we have to step back and notice something very important here, something that's easy to miss. Joseph can't succeed in his work unless Joseph is faithfully doing his work. Given Joseph's situation, it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to simply give up and give himself to cynicism. Joseph has been faithful to God and to all of his responsibilities. And what happens? Well, he's thrown into prison. It would be the easiest thing in the world for Joseph just to throw up his hands and say, this is such an upside-down world. Good is punished and bad is rewarded, so why even try in the first place? But Joseph doesn't do this. Joseph can't succeed unless he faithfully gives himself to his work, even amidst these extremely frustrating and difficult circumstances. And we cannot take this for granted. Joseph does not let the injustices of a faithless world keep him from everyday faithfulness. And all of us are called to the same thing. I remember talking to a teacher once who was is, who is in a situation where there were real institutional problems at the school. And the grades he gave to students, they weren't always the grades that students received. Sometimes things like family status or even bribes could work to keep the students from receiving the actual grades he had given. Sometimes grades were bumped up quite a bit. And so what did he do? What can any of us do in this kind of situation? Yes, as best we can, we can speak out against, uh, speak out against this and work against it. Please hear me say that. But this teacher also recognized his enduring responsibilities to his students and where this teacher actually had agency. He wasn't sure what would happen to his grades once he passed them on to the administration, but that did not change his responsibility to steward the classroom well. It didn't change his responsibility to prepare well, to teach well, to come along the students as they needed, especially those students who were trying so hard amidst a situation that was rigged against them. To simply give up on teaching well, to, to simply sort of bide your time in the classroom, that would simply be to trade and respond to one injustice with another injustice. And so we ask ourselves, no matter what our frustrations with the system that we are living and working in, how can I right here serve this student that's in front of me, this patient, this customer, this coworker, this person in need? In exile, in our time between Eden and the resurrection that we talked about last week, we will be thrown in situations and systems that benefit acts of injustice and punish faithfulness. This may be at our school, it could be at our job, it could even be in, in, in family or friendship situations. But this cannot change our responsibility to be faithful. If others are cheating at school, it doesn't change our responsibility to study faithfully. If others are cutting corners at work, it doesn't change our responsibility to work faithfully. If others are gossiping about someone else, it doesn't change our responsibility to speak faithfully. That's not easy. So how are we supposed to do that? 
Well, Joseph is able to faithfully steward his responsibilities amidst his very difficult circumstances. How? Well, again, it's because the Lord is with him. Again, we're told this eight times in the previous chapter. And this brings us to a key question we have to ask ourselves. What is the ultimate point of work? Or more broadly, what is the ultimate point of everything we do, our work included? We can look here to our our confessional and our foundational document, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And there's that, that, that wonderful and famous first question and answer that tells us that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what everything that we do is ultimately for, to glorify and to enjoy God, everything. And so while the Lord is already with Joseph, Joseph must learn to be with God. The more we enjoy and glorify God, the more that we receive God and the more that we are with God. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he he gives us a very helpful image here. He tells us that we receive God to the extent that we enjoy God. Aquinas compares us to, to buckets. He says, God is like a rushing river giving all of himself to us in Christ. God always acts with all of himself, and so he gives all of himself to those who are in Christ. However, we can only receive God according to the size of our buckets. The bigger our buckets, the more of God we receive, the more of God we enjoy, the more of God we glorify. And so here is the whole purpose of the human life boiled down into one image. What are we to do? To make our buckets bigger. To make our buckets bigger. And this means that our enjoying of God is not limited by God, but by us. If we are in Christ, we have been given all of God. Growth in the Christian life just is learning to receive more fully what has already been given to us freely and graciously in Christ Jesus. And for the people of God, just like Joseph, God is already with us. But we must learn to be more fully with God. The purpose of each part of our life, and and, and certainly the purpose of our work, is this. And really, this is just another way of saying that the purpose of our life, of everything, work included, is to conform us into the image of Christ, the one who loves God the Father with every inch, every bit of his being. And we can often speak of work primarily as creating order out of of chaos, and and maybe you've heard that before, and, and absolutely Please hear me, this is a key and essential part of our work. But this can be emphasized so much that we ignore the good order of creation that is already there. This can be emphasized so much that we forget that work also conforms us to the very good order and pattern of creation. For instance, we cannot forget that faithfully doing good work, what it does to our soul how it forms us and those around us to more fully glorify and enjoy God. Two key purposes of work are this. One, to love God and neighbor. And two, to form us into people who love God and neighbor. And that is just to say, a key purpose of work is the law of God. The law that calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. 
Work is essential for us to become lovers of God and neighbor. Even in Eden, we are called to the good work of gardening. This work was a key way that God intended to grow and mature Adam and Eve into what he intended them to be. In stewarding creation, they were also stewarding their soul. And the same, the same thing is true for us in all of the different responsibilities that God has placed upon us. Think of Daniel. Think of Joseph. It's by 13 years of faithful service and extremely challenging circumstances, it's this that forms Joseph into the wise and good ruler that Egypt needs. Without this time, he would not have been ready to assume this high position. Without this time, he may have done much more bad than good. And even if even if he'd never been promoted like this, all of this formation would absolutely have been worth it. Joseph has learned to be more fully with the Lord who is already with him. And so more than this high position in Egypt, Joseph is being fitted for an eternity with the Lord. As he, in the fullest human capacity, with the fullest bucket, as he glorifies and enjoys God forever. If our life, including our work, is not aimed at this purpose now, then this hope, this certain true hope, will hold no sway over our hearts, over our lives, over our work. If we don't desire being with the Lord now, what makes us think that we will desire it then? With that in mind, let's revisit the teacher that we mentioned before. In this case, teaching well, teaching with due diligence, with care for the students, no, no matter what the larger institutional problems, this good work is forming this teacher in a way that he desperately needs to be formed. In Aquinas' imagery, his bucket is getting bigger. He is learning to enjoy God more, to more fully be with the Lord who is already with him. He is loving God and neighbor and being formed to love God and neighbor for all eternity. And what this means is that Joseph, regardless of the work that he has been given to do in prison, if it is good work, it can lead him to enjoying and glorifying God. It doesn't matter how the work is received. It doesn't matter if his continued faithfulness is met with injustice. What matters is that this work, done well and unto the Lord, forms Joseph more fully to be with God. The Lord is with him already. And as Joseph faithfully stewards the task that God has given to him, Joseph is ever more with God. Joseph is growing his bucket. He is being conformed to the image of Christ. I recently listened to an interview with, with Alan Noble. He's a professor of, of literature. And he said that, that more and more of his college students are terrified of graduating and moving on to the next step. He says they've been told by our culture that it's up to them to make their lives a great story, a story that will impact people for generations to come. And he says this might seem like a great calling, like an exhilarating opportunity, but it's also exhausting. It can be a burden. It can be a crushing weight. It's a view of life that will never let you rest and be content with where you are, with what you have, and with what you are doing. Noble tells the story of, of a conversation that he has with, with one such student. And he says, you know, have you ever thought about simply going back to your hometown, getting a regular nine to five job and investing deeply in your local church and local community? She kind of steps back and she says, wait, I, I can do that? I'm allowed 
to do that. The problem here is that 22 years of propaganda have made the student think that her life has to be a grand narrative worthy of the movies. Because of this propaganda, this student and, and all of us, we take responsibilities upon ourselves that we were never meant to bear. If our work is ultimately about what we accomplish, then we can never rest in the quiet, faithful life of service that God calls us to. Even worse, some jobs will hold special privileges above other jobs. We're going to fail to rightly honor the slow, steady work that 99.9% .9 of us are called to. We're not going to be able to make sense of Paul's encouragement to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, the encouragement to live a quiet life. However, if our work aims at loving God and neighbor and forming us into people who love God and neighbor, then any good work is worth doing and it's worth doing well. And yes, like Joseph, people can take away our professional accomplishments, but they cannot take away the Lord who is with you. With respect to Joseph, we see this at the very end of the passage. After giving the chief cupbearer a favorable interpretation, Joseph makes this one request. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. However, at the end of the passage, we read, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph soon realizes that the cupbearer has wholly forgotten about him, and, and from there, more years will pass without any word from any royal official. But Joseph, and again, never take this for granted, Joseph continues his good work nonetheless. He continues his faithful stewardship of the task that he has been given. He even does this as when the cupbearer himself gives him no thanks or gratitude for the work that he has done. But again, Joseph isn't working for them. He's working for the Lord, the Lord who has orchestrated each aspect of his life. If Joseph's fate rests on the need for one particular human to remember to say some particular thing to one particular other human, then Joseph's life and his work is a very fragile thing. This is a life of frenetic activity and anxiety and worry. Maybe as, as we rest our life on the approval of some mere human, maybe our manager, maybe our academic advisor, maybe fellow parents. It's going to be a life of frenetic activity, worry, anxiety. But if Joseph's life and work rest wholly in the good sovereignty of God, then Joseph can work faithfully no matter his circumstances. God has given him specific work to do, and somehow God intends to form Joseph in this specific way that this work alone can and will form him. And the same is true for us, no matter what responsibilities that God places upon us. And this also means, this also means that life is much simpler than we often think. Don't lose yourself in big picture plans that take you away from the faithfulness that God is calling you to do today. In one of his lectures, the philosopher R.J. Snell, he asked college students to share things that they have done instead of sitting down and studying for the test they know they should be studying for. And he gets answers as diverse as reorganizing my closet or, or jumping online to buy new desk chairs. I think we can all relate to that. It's often the easiest thing in the world to do anything, but the one thing that God has called us to do in that moment. 
And this can be studying for a test, this can be making a necessary phone call, this can be grading papers, this can be writing computer code, this can be getting kids ready for bed. Before we ask what else we could be doing or what we want to be doing in 10 years, we have to make sure that we're asking ourselves, what has God called me to do today? And rather than frenetic activity that never ends or or restless ambitions that we never seem to meet, this is God's charge to us today and each and every day. To love and desire God more as you faithfully steward the tasks that God has given you this day. If you have done that, you have lived well that day. This brings us to our third And our final point, the interpretation of Christ. Again, Daniel tells us, he tells all of us, do not interpretations belong to God. Again, it's only by the interpretations given us to God that we rightly understand the ways and the works of God. And we see perhaps the most profound, the key example of this in Luke 24. Here, the resurrected Christ meets two travelers on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't recognize who he is. And and so they recount to Jesus all of the events that have recently happened to Jesus. They talk about how he lived a powerful life of ministry, but how he was condemned and crucified by the chief priests. And at the end of all that, they say this to Jesus. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They hope that Jesus would redeem the people of God, but unfortunately he's been killed and that hope has been crushed. What else could the death of Jesus mean? What other possible interpretation could there be? But again, do not interpretations belong to God? And so what is it that God himself says about these events? We see this in Christ's response. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is the interpretation of the Lord. This is what these events actually mean. And this is what all of the Old Testament is ultimately pointing to. And so we read the Joseph narrative and we ask, how could Joseph's time in the pit be something that God uses for good? How could such things, such horrible circumstances ever work according to God's good purposes? But here, here, we find the interpretational key. Here on the Emmaus Road, we find the ultimate assurance that God works great good amidst the greatest evil. God himself became human in Christ, and he lived the perfect life of service and love to God and neighbor. But what did we do? We killed him. We seized Christ. We falsely accused him, and we murdered him upon the cross. And how could that not destroy our hope of a redeemer? We respond to the ultimate good with the ultimate evil. But God had ordained all of these things before the very foundation of the world. The death of Christ, the seeming killing of our hope, becomes the very basis of our hope. This is God's authoritative interpretation. Yes, we meant the death of Christ for evil, but God meant it for our good, for our greatest good. And what this means is that the death of Christ interprets us. We are so lost in our sin, and our hearts are so given to evil, that only the death of Christ could properly pay 
the punishment that we deserve. How bad is sin in the sight of God? Well, it's so bad as to merit the death of the cross. The cross interprets and shows us the weight of our sin. But the death of Christ also shows us how deeply God loves us, how deeply God is committed to our good. Yes, we are so lost in our sin that that the cross is required. We are so loved by God that he lovingly gives us his son, Christ Jesus, to pay our sin. This is the interpretation of the cross. This is the interpretation of the cross, of us, and of God's good and gracious purposes. There's an often quoted statement from the pastor and counselor, Jack Miller, and it goes like this. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagined, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the interpretation of the cross. But again, what this means is that the death of Christ, the seeming killing of our hope, is actually the very basis of our hope. Even more, Christ is raised never to die again. This too is the hope that God is calling us to. And this is what every good task faithfully done is forming us for and fitting us to. The resurrection, our true and ultimate flourishing. And now because of the work of Christ, the Holy Lord can be with a sinful people. When we place our faith in Christ, he takes every last bit of guilt that we have and will merit, and he gives us every last drop of his perfect righteousness, his perfect standing before God. This is why the Lord can be with Joseph in the pit, and this is why the Lord can be with us in any and all circumstances that he lays upon us. And here's the thing. If God brings his ultimate good out of the ultimate human evil of the cross, of murder, then God can and will work his good in our lives even in the hardest of circumstances. If the death of Christ, if the death of Christ can be good news, then no evil ever has the last word. Even if at the time we are in our hearts tempted to say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It's often through the situations that seem most hopeless that our great and glorious God works his greatest and most glorious acts of redemption. And so even if we can see at present no reason for the evil that falls upon us like Joseph, we must learn to say, do not interpretations belong to God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you mean all things for our good. And Lord, that you have given us the greatest truth of that assurance that we could ever imagine through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and the ascension of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.